And I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to Romans chapter 9 as we get into God's Word. We've been going through the book of Romans. Uh, We've spent a few weeks on Romans chapter 8. We're going to tackle all of Romans chapter 9 this morning. So that's the task in front of us. Um, We saw last week in, in Romans 8 that the entire process of salvation is from God. Uh, We're secure in Christ because we know that what God started, he'll finish. Uh, So as we come to Romans 9, Paul is responding to people who are asking the question, Israel has rejected Christ and the Gentiles have embraced him. So since the Jews have pushed Jesus aside, has God rejected them? What about all the promises to the Jews in the Old Testament? Uh, Has God failed to keep those promises? And maybe the real question is if God failed with them, how do we know he won't fail with us? Basically, God's promises have come under scrutiny. And so what Paul is talking about in chapter eight and chapter nine is God's sovereignty. So in 1986, a Christian worker named Steve Saint was traveling through the country of Mali when his car broke down. He was stranded, he was alone. Um, Steve tried to rent a a truck, uh, but in spite of the warnings that if he tried to go through the Sahara Desert by himself, he would probably die. But he was discouraged, fearful about his situation, and Steve's thoughts went back to his father, Nate Saint, uh, who was a former missionary in Ecuador. We mentioned him last week because he was the pilot of uh, Jim Elliott and his other friends who died in Ecuador. So Steve was only five years old when that happened. These natives speared his father and four other missionaries to death. Uh, And so now, 30 years later, Steve found himself questioning his father's death. And and Steve reflected and he said, I couldn't help but be tempted to think that the murders of my father and his friends were just an accident of bad timing. So when Steve asked for some directions to a church in Mali, uh, he said there were a few children who led him to this thick mud brick house and it had a poster on the wall of nail pierced hands covering a, a cross. And a man flowing in, in robes introduced himself as Noah Yatara. And Noah was a former Muslim uh, who started sharing with Steve about his faith in Christ. After becoming a Christian, his family disowned him. They were at a family gathering. His mother uh, put poison in his food to try to kill him because he had converted to Christianity. But uh, even though he ate the food, he suffered no ill effects whatsoever. When Steve asked Noah why he was willing to pay such a steep price for following Christ, he simply said, I know God loves me, and I know I'll live with him forever. But Steve pressed Noah and said, where did your courage come from? And Noah explained that when he was young, a a missionary to Mali had given him books about Christians who had suffered for their faith. And then he added, my favorite story was of five young men who risked their lives to take God's good news 
to people in the jungles of Ecuador. And the book said they let themselves be speared to death even though they had guns and could have killed their attackers. And utterly shocked, Steve said, one of those men was my father. And now Noah was shocked. And he was like, that was one of those men were your father? And then Noah told Steve that God had used the death of those five missionaries, those brave missionaries to help him a young Muslim who had come to faith in Christ hold on to his faith in Christ. Steve realized that if God could plan the death of his own son, then he could also plan the death of his dad, Nate Saint. And he could plan that death to accomplish his sovereign purposes including reaching one young Muslim for Christ and then orchestrating this God-ordained meeting in the middle of nowhere at the ends of the earth. In fact, that's where Timbuktu is. It's in Mali. And so before he goes any further, Paul needs to show how the, the way, how, how the way God has dealt with Israel, instead of putting God's character in question, actually highlights some of God's attributes, and Paul specifically focuses on four of those attributes. So we're gonna read the passage as we go through it, but the first attribute Paul focuses on, number one on your outline, is God's faithfulness. So let's begin reading Romans 9 at verse one. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself, Paul writes, were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And we're gonna say amen. We're gonna stop right there and focus on these first verses. So there's so much joy in Romans 8. And now in Romans 9, Paul begins in verse two by saying, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul's love for for, the, for his people, the Jews, blows my mind. He is willing to go to hell, forever separated from God, if his people would just return and repent. Look at verse three. For I, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from, from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And then Paul mentions all these blessings that come with Israel's election. You can look at them in verses four and five. The adoption of sonship. Israel was adopted by God as his own people. The divine glory, God gave them the glory in the tabernacle in the temple. The glory that, that, that Mount Sinai was on Mount Sinai that Moses saw uh, went to dwell with Israel in the tabernacle, then the temple. And the covenants, God gave covenants to his people to Abraham and Moses and, and other covenants. And receiving the law, gave the law to govern their their lives and the temple worship. He gave them this entire ceremonial system 
uh, that God gave them. And the promises, think of all the promises in the Old Testament, and, and especially the promises of the Messiah to come. And the patriarchs, beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and so on. And the purpose of all this was that Jesus might come into the world. And, and notice the clear reference to the deity of Christ in verse 5. The Messiah who is God over all. And yet when Jesus appeared, Israel rejected him. They crucified him. And so what Paul is doing in these verses is explaining Israel's election. And the first thing he says, and this is on your outline, is that it was not about who was born first in verses six to nine. From the beginning, some Jews embraced the gospel and some didn't. And so the question is, is it a failure on God's part that not all Jews came to faith in Christ? And Paul says an emphatic no. Not everyone who was born in Israel was a true Jew. So look at verse six. It is not as though God's word had failed for for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but as the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. What these verses are saying is that even in the Old Testament, there was a distinction between Jews who were Jews by heritage and that only, and Jews who embraced Abraham's faith from the heart. And what Paul is arguing is that Israel, Abraham's physical descendants, rejected God's word. But this doesn't nullify the promises of God. And then Paul uses the example of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the next thing we see is that it's not based on what they did, not based on something they did in verses 10 to 13. So follow along in your Bibles again, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the selection of Jacob as an individual and the Israelites whom he represented was solely based on God's choice. Jacob had a rough start. If you know the story of Jacob, he had a rough start. But in the end, he holds on to the promises of God. And if you remember, Esau traded his stake in God's promises for a bowl of soup. And Esau represents the Jews who follow what they want to do instead of what God wants. And Jacob represents those who seek after God and cling to God's promises. Paul is saying that these two types of people have always existed in Israel, right next to each other. And and God never had a covenant relationship with Esau, only with Jacob. And the ones who have faith in Abraham, the, the faith of Abraham, are the ones who have truly believed in Jesus as the Messiah. 
God has rejected those who were like Esau because they were never his children to begin with. Dr. Donald Barnhouse writes this, uh, it's, it's on your outline, the quote is, God determined for causes that are to be found in himself and have not been revealed to us to show favor to Jacob. As believers, we must rest in this. God is not answerable to man for what he does. However, he can be relied upon to act consistently with his character, which has been disclosed supremely in Christ. With such a God, why should any of us question his ways? We know from John 3.16 that God loves sinners. He loves us. And, and we know from 2 Peter 3 that he's patient with us, not willing for any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. But at the same time, at the end of, of John chapter 3, where he talks about he so loved the world, the last verse of John chapter 3, verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So back to Jacob and Esau, if you know anything about those two rascals, the marvel is that God's, not God's rejection of Esau, but God's choice of Jacob. That was the grace of God because he didn't deserve it. God is faithful. Even though his people are unfaithful, he has always proved himself faithful. And that's what Paul says later to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. So each of the next sections in, in Romans 9 begin with a, they're introduced, if you will, by a question from Paul. And the first question is in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? So what this leads us to is in verses 14 to 18, and this is number two on the outline, God's righteousness. In other words, did God do something wrong by only showing mercy to Jacob and not to Esau? And the answer at the end of verse 14 is not at all. Election, and this is on your outline, is always totally about grace. If God acted, think about this, if God acted only on the basis of our righteous acts, uh, then we would all, no, no one would be saved. We would all be condemned. All of us deserve condemnation. That's what we saw in the first three chapters of Romans, which end by him saying uh, in verse, uh, chapter three, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We would all be condemned. In verse 15, Paul quotes Exodus 33 to, to, to Moses to show that God's mercy and compassion are all about God's will, not man's. Salvation is all from God. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, there's no sense of obligation with mercy. Mercy is giving something to someone they don't deserve. And if God doesn't owe us salvation, then he's free to give it to none of us or some of us, all of us. He can choose what he wants to do. And if you want to talk about fairness, it would be fair if God would leave all of us to the condemnation that we have chosen for ourselves. Verse 16, if it does not therefore depend on human desire, but on God's mercy. And so if God doesn't owe anyone mercy, you can't say that it's unfair that he didn't show it to some. 
And then Paul quotes Exodus chapter nine in verse 17 using Pharaoh as an illustration. And he says this, verse 17, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So we might ask a question like this. If God is in control of who believes, then how can he condemn the one who doesn't believe? Well, God's rejection of Pharaoh was just an extension of Pharaoh's own choices. So scripture says in Exodus chapter nine that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But that statement comes after, remember there were 10 plagues? That statement comes after the sixth plague. Before that, it says in Exodus chapter eight, over and again, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So what happens is that God used Pharaoh's hard heart, but it was, after, it was only after those first six plagues. So through those first six plagues, God, uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But then God used it, uh, God used Pharaoh's hard heart for his glory. But Pharaoh is to blame for his own hard heart. He had all these opportunities to soften his heart before God. So God maybe used Pharaoh's hard heart, but Pharaoh was to blame. <clears throat> the point is, and this is on your outline, that God is sovereign and acts according to his own will and purposes. He is perfectly just, for he is God. So think of it this way. Uh, suppose you have five friends who are fools and who talk, uh, get together, you hear they're getting together to talk about robbing a bank. And you find out about it. And you go to them and you do everything you can to try to talk them out of it. But in the end, they push you out of the way and they leave to go rob the bank. And you are so frustrated that the last friend out the door, you tackle him and you stay on top of him. And so he doesn't go with the others. So just those other four go. They rob the bank. In the process, a security guard is killed. Tellers are killed. These four men are caught and they go to jail for the rest of their lives, they're sentenced. But the one that you wrestled to the ground, he isn't sentenced because he wasn't there. So whose fault is it that the others were arrested and sentenced? Could they blame you because you didn't tackle them? And can the one who is walking around free say, oh, it's because I was so wise and because I was so righteous that I'm not in jail? Of course not. Those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. And those who are saved have no one to thank but Jesus, who like that friend is the hound of heaven and pursues us and he's after us. And if we say that, we, that God cannot be fair and be a God who elects, then we have a faulty concept of God. You know, unfortunately, Christian history has all kinds of examples of people who have not taken uh, this issue as it says it in the Bible, but they've gone to one extreme or the other. And unfortunately, that led the church in the history of the church at one point to stop sending missionaries to, to the ends of the earth. We said, let, the, let them find their own way to heaven. They can, if God wants to save them, he'll do it. But then along came a man whose name was William Carey and he upheld what the Bible said about election and also what the Bible said about evangelism. 
And as one author said, William Carey took his brothers by the theological lapels and shook some sense into them. And then they started sending out missionaries again, of whom William Carey was one of the first. You know, this last week in in doing reading for this uh, message this morning, I learned that two people, two men that I respect very much in the faith, uh, Chuck Swindoll and Ray Stedman, had a connection that I didn't know about. Uh, Chuck Swindoll had actually done a pastoral internship under Ray Stedman. And uh, Chuck Swindoll admitted that he had a very unbiblical view of God's sovereignty when he started that internship. And Swindoll writes this, he said, I was more comfortable with the Wesleyan emphasis on human free will. Living honorably and obediently was all about what I do, so I ran on the spiritual treadmill like a dutiful Christian, certain that I could become more and more Holy Spirit-minded by my own efforts. Ray Stedman helped me dig deeper into the scriptures to find the right perspective. He really got my attention one day by asking a surprising question. Chuck, what are you afraid of? Why are you so afraid of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? I blinked, looked out the window, down at my feet, and then back into Ray's eyes. I'm afraid I'll lose my zeal for the lost. I'm afraid that if I really do believe this, I'll become passive as a minister that I'll leave everything to God to sort out the elect and I will do nothing. And Ray said, you need to remember Spurgeon, the sovereign grace Baptist, who said this, if God had painted a stripe down the back of the elect, I would spend my days walking up and down the streets of London lifting up shirt tails. But because he said, whosoever wills, may come, I preach the gospel to everyone and I rely on him to lead those to faith who are his. And then Swindoll concludes with this. He said, that was a great help. The longer I serve God in ministry, the more comfort I find in the doctrine of God's sovereign choosing. Rather than making me passive, Confidence in God's complete control has freed me to proclaim the good news with even more zeal and greater freedom. And I am less burdened with whether I am successful or not. My responsibility is to be faithful. God's responsibility is for the results. It was A.W. Tozer who wrote this. You have the quote on your outline. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men and women. This the church has done, not deliberately, but little by little and without knowledge, making it all the more tragic. So we need to lift our eyes and have a biblical idea of who God is. And we will know God through his word. The next question that Paul gives that introduces the next characteristic of God is is in verse 19. Then why does God still blame us? Is God's choice to save some, isn't it inconsistent with his goodness? 
And again, the answer is a resounding no. And this leads to the third attribute of God that Paul mentions in Romans 9, and that's God's justice. It's number three, God's justice. Paul's reasoning goes like this. If Pharaoh was used by God to work out his plan, then isn't it unfair for God to judge Pharaoh? And Paul gives three answers to this charge. You've got them on your outline. Answer number one, who are we to argue with God? Look at verse 19. One of you will say then to me, why then, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? We'll stop there. If we've chosen to reject God, then God will use our choices for his glory all the time. Answer number two, God has his purposes. Verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? You know, we're used to thinking of ourselves as the center of the universe. Let me inform you, we are not. God is the center of this universe. Uh, his glory will always reign supreme overall. And God's glory is evident by the way he shows mercy. Uh, that God has great patience, it says in verse 22, points to the many opportunities that he gave to Pharaoh, that he's given to you, that he's given to me, and that he gives to everybody to be saved. The, the Greek verb translated objects of his wrath prepared for destruction could be translated objects of his wrath fitted by themselves for destruction. Although God has the right to mold clay into anything he wants it to be, he allowed Pharaoh to choose his own shape. And it's as if the Lord merely hardened the decisions that Pharaoh made. And out of grace, he did it gradually instead of immediately. He could have done it before any of the plagues. But he waited for the sixth, after the sixth. So verse 23, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? God prepares people for glory, but as sinners, we prepare ourselves for judgment. And since no one deserves any mercy, God can't be charged with being unjust. And then verse 24 continues, even us whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. God's purpose ultimately was to form his church out of Jews and Gentiles. By God's grace, we're objects of his mercy. Look back to, to Romans 8, 28 to 30. It's that, that's where we talked about it. That's where we see it. And this leads to answer number three, which was all of this was prophesied. All of this is prophecy in the Old Testament. And then he begins to quote all these Old Testament verses. You have them all listed on your outline. In verse 25, he quotes Hosea 2 to show that God said he would turn from the Jews and call the Gentiles. So Romans 9, verse 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. 
and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. He's going after the Gentiles, he says. And then verse 26, he quotes Hosea 1, and he says that he would be calling a people uh, who would be called the children of the living God. Look at verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, there they will be called children of the living God. And then in verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah 10 and to show that only a remnant of Israel, only some of Israel would be saved while the rest of the nation would suffer judgment. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. And then in verse 29, we have Isaiah chapter one. Uh, where it's an emphasis on God's grace, sparing even the remnant, sparing even some. Verse 29, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. So what does all this prove? Well, Paul wants these people to see that he's writing to. God wants us to see that God was not unjust in saving some and judging others. Because he was only fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. That's what these are all about. And they were given hundreds of years before this. Paul is saying God would, would, would be unjust if he was not keeping his word, but he's keeping his word. He's true to his word. But even, even more than that, God, uh, these prophecies show that God's election has made possible the salvation of the Gentiles. That's what he was pointing to. Some Jews do believe and God's word has been fulfilled. And all this has proved that God's character is faithful, God is righteous, and God is just. Israel's rejection hasn't canceled God's election. It's only proved that he was true to his character, and that he is true to his character, and will always be true to his character. And then the final question of Paul, the final section, is in verse 30. What then shall we say? And Paul finally points us to God's grace. That's number four. Paul goes from talking about divine sovereignty to human responsibility. And he does this by emphasizing faith, not by talking about the elect. The Jews thought that the Gentiles had to come up, so to speak, to their level by obeying the law in order for them to come to faith in Christ. That's what the Jews said. The truth was that they had to go down, so to speak, to the level of the Gentiles to be saved. They had to humble themselves before God. And what they were, that's what they, exactly what they were not doing. The Jews rejected righteousness by grace and they tried to please God by obeying the law through their own righteousness. And that doesn't work. What does Isaiah say about our own righteousnesses? They're like filthy rags before God. Verse 30. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal, will never get to heaven by living the law. Why not? Verse 32, because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Israel rejected the gospel because they chose not to humble themselves before God and they chose not to accept salvation by grace as a free gift from God through Christ. 
God doesn't owe salvation to any of us, but he offers it to all of us. And Paul's final quotation is from Isaiah 28, and he refers to Jesus as God's stone of salvation in verse 33. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The Jews stumbled, and the Jews still stumble today over the stumbling stone, over Jesus. God gave Christ to be the foundation stone and Israel rejected him and he became for them a stumbling stone. So we have to decide what kind of righteousness it is that we're seeking. Is it a righteousness that you are seeking that is dependent on your good works and your character or is it a righteousness that comes from God alone through Christ alone for salvation? What are you seeking? No one will deny that there are mysteries around the connection between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But we have to understand that from God's perspective, we have these finite minds trying to understand an infinite God. And we have a brilliant mind in the Apostle Paul that's taking us there to examine it as deep as we can go. But from God's perspective, these two things do not compete. They cooperate together. Do we understand it? No, we don't understand it all. You know, when a man asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility, Spurgeon said, I never try to reconcile friends. In his book, uh, which I love, uh, called The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer attempts to reconcile these seemingly contradictory beliefs and God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And here's what he writes. He says, as an, an ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool, its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of God's sovereignty. On board the liner are scores of passengers. They're not in chains. They're completely free to move about as they will. Their activities are not determined for them by decree. They eat, they sleep, they play, they lounge about on the deck, they read, they talk, all together as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here and they do not contradict. So it is, I believe, Tozer concludes, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. And so the main point of this chapter, and you have this on your outline, is that Israel's rejection of Christ does not deny the faithfulness of God. So Paul asks, what shall we say? And the answer is, it's all of faith. It's all of Christ. It's all about grace. So, so what? So how should this impact our lives? This isn't on the outline, but I wanna give you five words that you can write down that will help you remember how this should impact our lives. The first word is the word peace. Because God's sovereignty removes 
all cause for us to worry. And who among us doesn't worry? Paul is saying that what the Bible says about God's character is backed up by his ability. Not only does God love us, but he has the ability to care for us. Romans 8, 28, that God uses all things for his glory, our, it's, for our good, is true. God does indeed work out all things for our good, and that should give us the peace of God. The second word to write down is the word comfort. Comfort. Because God's sovereignty means that we can trust God's sanctifying work in us, that he is at work in us to make us like his son Jesus. Yes, we're called to obedience, and what we do matters. But we also trust God to bring us to maturity. We go back to Romans 8, 29 to 34, that God's predestined us to be like his son Jesus that we talked about last week. So instead of focusing on our, on our performance, we focus on who God is and getting to know him. And so that leads to our comfort. The third word is the word humility. Humility, God's sovereignty should humble us. It should make us fall on our knees before a God that we realize there, who has no obligation to show us mercy for who he is, that he is sovereign, that he is so far beyond us. And so that leads to humility on our part. I've saved the last two, the most important for the last number four. The fourth word is the word boldness. God's sovereignty gives me boldness in evangelism and reaching out to others. I, I go back to what William Carey believed, that my job is to present the gospel to people who are lost and it's God's job to convert them. I convert no one. And maybe you're saying, man, I'd love to know some basics about how to share my faith. Well, you know what? Uh, June 11th, Sunday, uh, I'm gonna be doing the class on how to share your faith. So come and join me and we'll talk about some of those basics. And then the last word is the word awe. A-W-E, awe. God's sovereignty should make me stand in awe of God. It's like the title of C.S. Lewis' book, the weight of glory, we, we, we feel the weight of his glory, we're in awe of who God is. We, we wonder at him, we, we look and, and we think, man, God, thank you for who you are. And the most important question of all is this, have you received God's offer of salvation? If you have, praise him for showing you mercy, and if you haven't, God is giving you that choice right now today and you can make it uh, right, right now. And let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that you are sovereign over all things. You alone give us life and breath and time and resources to be used for your glory. You, you not only have the right to do it as you please, but we acknowledge that all you do is good and wise because you are good and you are wise. We confess that we only deserve your wrath and your judgment. Sometimes we've taken your gifts for granted, and so now we say wholeheartedly, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your provision in our lives, Lord. Thank you for Jesus' once and for all sacrifice as the way to gain access to your presence. And so, Lord, we bask in what in no way we merit. 
and that is your everlasting love for us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we will soon be rejoicing around your throne in heaven along with brothers and sisters from every tongue and tribe and nation. How we long for that day. And we pray if there are any here who might not know you, that you would draw them to yourself. May they call out to you right now in faith and say, Lord, I need you. Come into my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes at the end of Romans 15, I pray that God the source of hope will fill you completely with joy and peace. Because you trust in him, then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here today. And please introduce yourself to uh, people that you're sitting around. And happy Mother's Day.